0: Amen. Katie always does such a beautiful job of inviting the spirit in and opening and preparing our hearts, so Katie, just thank you. I don't know how you do it. Good morning, friends. Today's reading comes from the New Testament, the book of Luke, verses 11, excuse me, 11, chapter 11, 14 through 29. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, The man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he has driven out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, He takes away the armor in which the man trusts and divides up his plunder. The word of God for the people of God.
1: I uh, agree with Greg. I think, uh, I mean, all of our worship leaders do such a fantastic job. But I felt like I heard a sermon this morning before I even got up to preach a sermon. So thank you, Katie. It was fantastic. I do want to admit, uh, this passage is really weird, Uh, and there are a lot of things as I dug into the passage, I just, I'm going to be frank, like I didn't know what to do with it. Um, And so this sermon is my best attempt to do something with this passage to make some kind of meaning out of it that is coherent and understandable. And it's not that, it's not that Luke is incoherent, it's, it's that the, the, the world that Luke describes here is so foreign to us with demons mm-hmm. and demons casting out demons and people wondering about that. It, like it, it's just foreign to often the way we think. And so uh, I'm, I'm trying my best to describe a world that is different than my own. So let me start here. Many of you know that I did not uh, grow up going to church. I did not start attending church regularly until I was in 11th grade. And somehow I found myself in a fundamentalist church. And the fundamentalist church was so elitist, thinking that they were the only ones that could possibly be right, that even the Southern Baptists were considered liberals who were going to hell. So like that that should tell you something about like how elitist this group is, and the thing is, even when Southern Baptists or Methodists or Lord forbid Catholics uh, did something good, my church said there's no way that they could be doing good out of Power from the Holy Spirit because clearly we are the only ones who have the Holy Spirit. So they must be doing good works out of a selfish motivation at best or a demonic motivation at worst. So when it came to the Southern Baptists and maybe the Methodists, when we would do disaster relief or something, they would look at the work that was done in disaster relief and they couldn't deny that a good work was done. But what they would do would be impugn the motives behind it. Oh, the Methodists, they're just trying to do these good works so they can get in good with God so that when they die, they can go to heaven. Their interpretation of our motives was that we had mixed motives at best. It was even worse for Catholics Catholics were, to this group, demonic through and through. So when the Catholics did some good work, like Catholic social justice or charity, they would literally say they were doing it for demonic reasons. To my church, Christians who aren't, weren't like us claimed to be members of God's household, but really everyone else was just squatters in need of evicting Now, you and I have probably met people like that. You Live in the Bible Belt long enough, you've met people like this. Some of them might even be in your own household or your own uh, family. You go to Thanksgiving dinner and the last thing you wanna do is talk to them about religion or politics. Because it doesn't matter how sincerely you believe what you believe. It doesn't matter how faithful you are trying to be to Jesus. They interpret all of what you say through the lens of their skepticism about you. Because otherwise, to give you the benefit of the doubt, to say and allow the possibility that God is at work in your life would force them to have to rethink too much about themselves. And so really when you encounter those people, they're saying more about themselves than they are about you. It turns out that this is the kind of thing that is happening in this passage today. Greg read that there was a demon that was squatting in the body of a young boy, causing him to not be able to speak. As the story begins, we don't get a dramatic telling of the exorcism of the demon, all that Luke says is that Jesus exercised the demon, evicted the demon from the boy's body. And the crowd's response is not a question of whether the demon exists. So we got to get, take our 21st century thinking caps off and put on first century thinking caps. They're not, this is not a question of whether demons exist, whether the spiritual realm exists. It is a question of the source behind Jesus' authority. They are asking about the source of Jesus's power. Does his power to evict evil squatters come from Israel's God or does it come from an evil source? Now, before we get into this, I think it is important to notice something. Notice who the people are who are asking the question. Question. We often assume that Jesus' opponents are the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the people questioning the source of Jesus' power and motives are the common people in the crowd. Notice what Luke says. The crowds were amazed, but some of them said, no wonder he can cast out demons, he gets his power from Satan. The crowds... The Pharisees and the Sadducees are such default targets for us in our own criticism of ancient Judaism that several biblical scholars, okay, so people who are professionals, who do uh Biblical scholarship professionally for a living, they defaulted in their books, as I was studying this, to language blaming the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But that's not what Luke says. Luke says it's the crowd. And the reason why this matters to me, that it's the crowds, is that if we just blame the religious elite for everything, it lets us off the hook for our own complicity and our own rejection of God's work in the world. You don't have to be a spiritually elite person. You don't have to be a paid pastor or rabbi to interpret the work of God in the world as if it is the work of Satan. The crowds can do that too. In fact, the power of such claims comes because the crowds are convinced of it. By centering the crowd's opposition to Jesus, Luke shows us that it is all of us. All of us play this game. Now, notice what they're saying. They're wondering if Jesus' power comes from Satan. The Greek is not Satan. I think the NLT, as Greg read, says Beelzebul. The reason this translation says Satan is because most of us, we read Beelzebul, we're like, I don't know, who is this? What are we even talking about? So a little background. Beelzebul, you know the word end of it, Baal, Baal, from the Old Testament. And Beelzebul is like, uh, Baal means God and Beel means something like throne. It's the one, it's the deity who sits on the throne. Beelzebul is an Old Testament Canaanite deity that has not, stay with me here, has not been worshipped by anyone for thousands of years by the time we get to Jesus in the New Testament. So, do you notice the difficulty here, the chronology? How are they going to accuse him of getting his power from a Canaanite deity that A doesn't exist and B hasn't been worshiped for thousands of years? Why would you, why would you make a claim like that? So why would the crowd suggest that Jesus receives his power from a Canaanite deity? There are no Canaanites. The answer to this is going to be familiar to us. It sounds absurd but let me unpack some examples of how we do the same thing. Do you remember from your history courses? Maybe some of you lived it. Do you remember from your history courses, the Red Scare? Joseph McCarthy out there just outing communists in the United States government. It turned out none of the people he outed as communists were communists and it turns out he was just making up stuff the whole time. The point isn't really that he thought they were communists. The point was he understood the power of the rhetoric. You make an accusation during the Cold War that that your opponents are communists. And the power of that rhetoric spreads and it causes not only the people you work with, but the common people to begin to now look at that person suspiciously. It's the same thing that happens. I just read an article this week about, it was titled, why does Donald Trump keep referring to Democrats as fascists? Fascism is historically a far right-wing ideology so to connect it with American left-wing politics seems problematic if you want to make an argument that Democrats are communists that would make more rational sense It, it doesn't by the way but it would make more rational sense but he says this because the power of calling someone a fascist particularly when people don't know what fascism is, it causes people to uh, have questions about your character. Oh, you're a genocidal maniac. That's all fascism means anymore. So it's not a matter of whether the Democrats are fascists. It's a matter of how powerful the rhetoric is and its influence in the minds of people. So... No one in this crowd thinks that Jesus literally gets his power from a Canaanite deity. But what they do is suggest implicitly that the source of his power is evil, the whole idea is to rhetorically cause more and more people to question his acts of goodness and to, instead of giving people a positive interpretive framework that says this is from God, to instead give them a negative interpretive framework that says this is from an evil source. They're accusing Jesus of being worse than a communist, worse than a fascist, They're saying he's evil and that he is using evil to evict evil. Now stay with me there on the logic of that sentence. He's using evil to evict evil. Now you and I would be like, that is absurd. That is a completely irrational statement, and so here's what's gonna happen. Jesus is about to respond with reason to them. Over the next few sermons, we won't be in this passage, but the reverberations of this claim that he is using evil to evict evil will be carried out through the next few passages we read, and so we'll see the different tactics Jesus uses to try to work with them and their insistence on interpreting him negatively. But for now, he is going to respond with reason. Your claim is that evil evicts evil. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus says, that that is stupid. He says it this way. Any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say I'm empowered by Satan. But if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? Pretty rational argument, right? It doesn't make sense to say that evil evicts evil. Now, if we were ancient Greco-Roman people, Jesus' argument here wouldn't make sense at all. Because the Greco-Romans believed in polytheism right? You remember this from like your high school world religions course, right? There's a belief in multiple gods, sometimes hundreds or thousands. You've got a hierarchy in the gods that there are powerful gods and there are subordinate gods, and maybe then there are just like spirits that aren't gods at all. And the thing is, That when you read this literature from middle school or high school or your your college 101 world history course, like wherever you encountered it, you realize, like reading this literature, that some of the gods might have been generally good, some of them were bad, some of them were indifferent, and most were self-absorbed and morally ambiguous. In the Greco-Roman pantheon, it is absolutely conceivable that different deities and different spirits could be having a war with each other, but not so in ancient Palestinian Judaism. In ancient Palestinian Judaism, which is strictly monotheistic, you have what is called dualism, A strict binary between good and evil. Now, um, I should say, first of all, I think this image actually comes from Russian propaganda from the 2016 uh, elections. But what, is it, what does it communicate? Why, why would they propaganda us this way? They know that primarily white, Bible-belt, Republican, Christians believe that there is this sort of dualism where there is a war happening between white Jesus and everyone else. That we are the elite ones who get everything right. Now, and, and also you'll notice, I'm just doing my rhetoric nerd here thing. This is, this is free by the way, not in my notes. But you'll notice that the, the powers are equal. They're, they're having a wrestling match, but no one is winning. So who decides who's gonna win? Well, it's when the white evangelicals show up and push Jesus' hand, right? So th- th- this, this image displays a kind of dualism, but a dualism where there are two equal parties. Ancient Palestinian Judaism had a dualism where there was good and there was evil, but it wasn't between two equal parties. God is the stronger one in the, relation, in, in, in the duel, right? Now, Jesus, then, is appealing to this shared assumption that there is a dualism and that God is the stronger party and that God is the good party. And he says, logically, therefore, if I am casting out evil by means of evil, that would mean that Satan is fighting himself. And every time I read Jesus say that, I think about that. Do you remember that old movie, not so old that it's black and white, old, old for me, so like 20 years ago. Do you remember that old movie Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey? Do you remember the scene where he realizes that he can't tell lies anymore, and he's walking through his office, and he's just p- saying bluntly all of these truths, right? And he, he's like getting in trouble. He's saying these absurd things, and he, so he goes in his office, and he grabs a pen, And he says, I, I realize I can't tell a lie, so I'm going to try to write a lie. And so he grabs a blue pen, and he's going to try to write with the blue pen that the pen is red, and he can't do it. And so what he ends up doing in the scene is he has a wrestling match with himself, and he comes up, and his face has, the pen is blue all over. That absurdity is what Jesus is saying that there is, claiming when they say that evil is fighting itself. It's silly. It's absurd. It's an irrational claim. Because for Jesus, where you see goodness and liberation, God is close at hand. Where there is genuine virtue and beauty and holy love entering into the world, it might be someone you disagree with, but it's still the work of God. The church I attended in high school, I said, had a problem grasping that there could be genuine goodness in anyone else. Here's the problem. When you make your world that clean cut between good and evil, and we are of course always on the good side, it leads you to incredible rational absurdities. Let me illustrate this, and it's gonna seem like a distraction, but I promise I'll bring it back. My church could not accept that there was good in other churches. And so, it led to this rational absurdity. Two things that are unrelated that I'm gonna draw together. First, they believed that you should only listen to sacred music. What is sacred music? It's hymns and southern gospel. Shocking that it's Southern gospel, right? But hymns in Southern gospel, what you should definitely not listen to is rock and roll of any form or rap in any form. Because the drum beats in rock and roll and rap conjure demons. Anybody ever heard this? Have you encountered it? Thank you. I know that I am not alone in this. So the belief is that the drum beats conjure demons who can then influence your body or maybe possess you. They even went so far as to tell these stories, and, and by the way, I, I tried to find where this story came, uh, came from and I found it in one of those old Chick tracks. It's cartoons, right? With no real citation there, but the story was That, uh, uh, By the way, A, let's just notice the subtle racism in no rap music or rock and roll, which historically descends from black music, right? So already we have a subtle racism. Then notice the story. The story is that, of course, these white missionaries go to Africa, and their kids take along with it um, Christian rock and roll, and they're listening to it. And then the African tribe chief comes to the dad and says, hey, you should tell your kids not to listen to that because we used to use that drumbeat to conjure demons. Now, again, notice the subtle racism here, right? It's Africa. Why Africa of all the places the missionaries could have gone? Now, here's this belief that demons can be conjured and be imminent and present to us through drum beats. Contrast that with, they also believed that God stopped speaking to us when the Bible was finalized. That the only way that God speaks to us is through the Bible and there was no need for any continuing revelation from God after the Bible was written. So let me just like put this out in some sort of like logical fashion. A... God stops speaking to us except through the Bible. B, demons can be conjured and communicated with through rock and roll rhythms. Therefore, I can only conclude this. Demons are closer to us than God. Right? It, it's an absurd statement. And this is part of what Jesus is getting at here, right? Right? What is at stake here is whether they believe that God can be active in the world, that God's fingerprints can be seen in the world, that goodness and liberation are God's activities in the world. And the closeness of God, that God is closer to us than evil, that God is closer to us than death, the closeness of God is exactly Luke's point The whole point of Jesus' incarnation is that God has seen our suffering under the forces of evil in this world. That God has so intimately known our being shaken by death that God has entered into it and has decided to do something about it. God is closer to us than death. God is closer to us than evil. Jesus says... If I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The Greek is literally, if I am evicting demons by the finger of God, then... The reign of God has come among you. Notice where I've highlighted there, the intimacy of God's fingers touching our world, the kingdom of God, not as some distant future reality where we go off into heaven when we die, but the kingdom, the reign of God being enacted right now in the midst of this world of death, in the midst of this world of suffering, in the midst of this world of addiction, in the midst of this world, God's kingdom is breaking in and is tangible and closer to us than any of those things. When we see the goodness and liberate, when we see goodness and liberation, God is close at hand. The reign of God is here. The finger of God is leaving footprints, finger footprints, the finger of God is leaving fingerprints Everywhere injustice is alleviated, anywhere physically and spiritually enslaved people are liberated, anywhere holy love breaks through, the finger of God, the reign of God is coming near. I know that it doesn't feel like it now, because at best, often we just feel numb to the things of God. And at worst, we know death and we know fear. I know it doesn't feel like it now when we live in a city where it seems like every single night the news starts with there's another shooting. I know it doesn't feel like it now in a state where it seems like what we're gonna do is our solution to all the shootings is just to provide more people with opportunities for shooting. I'm not even against people owning guns, by the way. I'm just against the proliferation of guns as some sort of solvent to our gun problem. Violence cannot defeat violence. Any more than demons can evict demons. This is literally the point of the cross is that God refuses to inflict violence. American Christianity in its right and its left forms have justified all kinds of forms of interpersonal and international violence, and that is directly contrary to everything Jesus stood for, and we sit there and we clap it and we in it when our presidents and our politicians vote for more money, for more war machines, and Jesus is sitting here saying, violence cannot defeat violence. That's not how this works. It's rationally absurd. I know that it doesn't feel like this is a place where God is closer than violence or death. But Jesus, by pointing out the divine origins of his power, he is showing us that evil and death are just squatters in this world that do not and will not take up permanent residence here. Jesus is bringing the good news of liberation. And it's not just spiritual liberation. It is physical liberation. It is economic liberation. It is political liberation. It is racial liberation. It is gendered liberation. It is sexual liberation. God is bringing liberation into this world. And in the resurrection of Jesus, God has already started to evict evil. The eviction of evil from this world does not begin someday after we die. It is already beginning now. You and I are working with God to bring heaven to earth. We are not passively waiting to go to heaven. This is why Jesus uses the strange, strained metaphor When he says, when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him and strips him of his weapons and carries off his belongings. Now, I'm not even going to lie. I've been reading my Bible for 25 years, and I have never understood what in the world Jesus is talking about. And sitting down with this text and just going over it, here's what I think I figured out. When a strong man, what strong man? This is a metaphor. Who's the strong man? The strong man here is the demon that was possessing the young boy. So read it that way. When the demon is fully armed and guards his palace, this boy's body, his possessions are safe. He just lives there. Until someone stronger attacks and overpowers him and strips of his weapons and carries off his belongings. Who's the stronger one? God is Right? It's a dualism, but it's not an equal dualism. So what is Jesus saying? That Jesus is saying that evil has taken up residence in this world, made this world and our bodies and our lives, that death has made this world its palace. And we feel it viscerally. But in the death and resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus refuses to wield violence, and instead overcomes the world through Holy Spirit-empowered resurrection, God is liberating us from the grip of evil and death. God has already started the eviction process. Evil is just a squatter. And God is the landlord coming with the eviction notice. This is what we believe. This is who we are. We are not the saviors of the world. We are not the messiahs. We are not even the powerful who drive out the the evil from the world. We are simply people who are trying to learn from the life of Jesus and to live in light of the fact that evil and death are already defeated. And that is symbolized most powerfully in our reception of communion when God takes on our death and makes it a symbol of life.